My name is Hanneke Olivier. I'll be reading an in-depth story about research from Utrecht University. This is a story written by Marty Kouwe about plastic. 99% of all the plastics in the ocean is missing. We know it went in, but we have no clue where it's headed. One thing is certain, though. Plastic is never really gone. The question is, where did it go? By finding out where the plastic is, we can investigate how harmful it is. Think of plastic in your own drinking water, in your food, or even in unborn babies. By tracking the journey of plastic through the oceans, we can trace where it originates and who is responsible. That's the starting point of the challenge that is becoming more pressing every day, reducing the ever-growing rubbish pile of plastic. Where has all the plastic gone? Even though plastic packaging was designed as a disposable, plastic is here to stay. In the Netherlands alone, we add 512 million kilograms of plastic packaging each year to the ever-growing pile of rubbish. That's 1,500 packages per person per year, or four a day. We recycle only a fraction of it. You might have seen shocking pictures of sea turtles tangled in plastic bags and waterways filled with plastic bottles as far as the eye can reach. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. To set things straight, islands of floating plastic are a myth. The truth is, in fact, even more disturbing. Plastic falls apart in tiny microplastics and even smaller nanoplastics. There are not many animals that engulf an entire cola bottle. But microplastics are so small that they can permeate almost everything, says oceanographer Erik van Sabier, who is chair of the interdisciplinary network Utrecht Plastic Sources Sink and Solutions of Utrecht University. The longer plastic stays in the ocean, the more microplastics will emerge and the more problems it can cause. That's why it's worrying that 99% of the plastic in the ocean is missing, as Utrecht scientists calculated. Where is it and what harm does it cause? For an oceanographer, studying the plastic journey is the silver lining of the plastic soup issue. Plastic soup is a drama, but let's make use of it and learn more about the ocean, says Erik van Sabier, who studies the way plastic travels through the ocean by modelling the ocean currents and tracking the transport of material. But his research is not just about answering fundamental questions. Knowing how plastic travels through the oceans has many practical implications as well. If we encounter plastic in the ocean and know how it travels, we can calculate where it entered the water. That's to say who is responsible for it. It's where the sources and sinks in the Utrecht Plastic Sources, Sinks and Solutions Network refer to. It helps in finding solutions too. At the same time, you can also predict where plastic will travel to and where it will come ashore, contributing to effective ways of cleanup, von Sibelius says. From the deep sea to alpine snow and remote islands, researchers are now discovering plastics in all kinds of places. Although it shouldn't be there, plastic in the ocean itself is not the problem here. Plastic in an organism or in your body is, says von Sibelius. So where is it? That's what we have to find out. And that's why scientists from Utrecht University are joining hands and work towards ways to detect even the smallest plastic particles. Just because you can't detect it doesn't mean it's not there. It isn't the larger pieces of plastic that cause the biggest problems, agrees biologist Lonneke Eiseldag from Utrecht University, who examines about 50 to 100 stranded harbour porpoises in the necropsy room every year. 
I still have to receive the first porpoise that died because of plastic. She does encounter pieces of plastic in cetaceans, but marine debris, as researchers call it, is not responsible for the direct death of the animals. In about 7-15% to of the harbour porpoises, we find marine debris, but not in large chunks that cause obstruction or perforations, as you might expect, says Eiseldijk. Even in stranded sperm whales along the North Sea coast in which we discovered entire buckets, fishing robes and half a car bumper, marine debris was not the cause of death, says Eiseldijk. It may seem counterintuitive, especially given the size of these giants, but it's the microplastics that may form a greater health issue for sea life. Filter feeders, like baleen whales, are more prone to ingest microplastics as they swim continuously with their mouths wide open. Porpoises might ingest them too. We just don't know yet, because microplastics are so tiny they are hard to detect. There is still a lot to discover about the toxicity and the health risks they might cause, says Eiseldijk, who is also part of the Uplastics 3 network. That is why lab studies and the collaboration with research groups from different fields is so important. While finding microplastics can already be complex, detecting the even smaller nanoplastics turns out to be a huge challenge. Help sometimes comes in unexpected ways, shows Utrecht-based chemist Florian Meijer, whose group works with several spectromicroscopic techniques to usually perform analytic measurements on nanoparticles in, for example, catalysis materials and battery electrodes. Nanoplastics are incredibly hard to detect with usual techniques. By combining several of our techniques, we are able to measure individual nanoplastics with the size of one thousandth of the width of a human hair, says Meyerer, who is part of the Uplastics 3 network as well. The researchers from Uplastics 3 already found nanoplastics in ocean water, the sea bottom and alpine snow. It's not just the presence of nanoplastics. The researchers are also able to get an idea about the type of plastic, whether it is, for example, PET, polystyrene or some other material. And there's more, Myers add. By studying how larger pieces of plastic degrade into nanoplastics, we want to estimate the age of nanoparticles that are found in the ocean. By combining the duration of its ocean journey with knowledge about ocean currents from Eric van Sabier, will ultimately be able to trace back its origin. So far, screening water works, but detecting nanoplastic in tissue and blood, however, is next level. Both nanoplastics and human samples, like tissue or blood, are organic materials that mainly consist of carbon, oxygen and hydrogen. For such small particles as nanoplastics, that makes it hard to distinguish between the two, explains Myra. We're currently working on ways to pre-digest samples to be able to detect nanoplastics in blood. This will help to identify plastic in, for example, organ tissue from the cetaceans Lonica Eiseldijk is working with, as well as to detect plastics in human tissue and to assess the toxicological effects in the lab. Utrecht University is frontrunner in investigating the health effects of micro and nanoplastic in such an interdisciplinary approach and such a wide scale, says toxicology professor Juliette Ledgler, who looks at the effect of microplastic during pregnancy and early life. Microplastics can potentially be harmful in three different ways. As particles, they can either elicit a stress response in cells. The plastics can also leak chemical additives into the body. 
All the plastics can be a vector for transporting bacteria and microorganisms, Ledgler explains. We have the first indications that microplastics are absorbed by the human body, but we hardly know their effects on our health, she says. The indications Legler is referring to are as much astonishing as they are alarming. In the last couple of years, several Utrecht research groups from the U-Plastics 3 network have been looking at specific parts of the body to investigate whether microplastics enter and affect the human body. Their achievements are profound. By looking at placentas and performing model studies at the lab, we now have strong indications that microplastics enter the placenta. Since we also have indications that microplastics are present in the amniotic fluid, it is not unlikely that unborn babies swallow microplastics, says Letchler. Colleague Raymond Peters was able to demonstrate that microplastics enter the gut and pass into the tissue and beyond. Interactions may elicit immune responses, and neurotoxicologist Remco Westring was able to show that microplastics can even pass the blood-brain barrier and may affect neurofunction. To further explore the risks of plastic particles for human health and the exposure, ranging from textiles to football pitches with artificial grass, immunotoxicologist Peters will lead a large European consortium called PolyRisk, in which also Florian Mayer's group is involved. Ledgler will continue looking at effects of microplastics on pregnancy and early life in the Project Aurora. For example, by investigating microplastics in umbilical cord blood and performing epidemiological follow-up studies in children. Lechler will also start the new multi-million euro Momentum project, together with almost 13 knowledge institutes and industries, to investigate the effects of microplastics on human health and work in close collaboration with the plastic industry. Because there is more to discover... We've now demonstrated that microplastics appear in specific parts of the body, and we already observe that microplastics alter gene expression and cell metabolism. But we need more, says Ledgler. We see that our cells react to the microplastics, and although it's not natural, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmful. Once we determine what the long-term effects are, we can work with industry to find solutions to prevent exposure, Ledgler explains. Knowing more about the toxicological effects is not just a health issue. It's also key for providing a legal framework. Of course, everyone has this gut feeling that plastic shouldn't be in your food or in your body. But as long as there is no proof of harmful effects, there is no need for policymakers to actually do something about it, says environmental law professor Chris Buckus from Utrecht University, who is also part of the U3 Plastics Network. The difficulty with plastic in the ocean is that it's a global issue. International supply chains and free trade agreements aren't making things easier. It's all connected to each other, but the law isn't. The plastic problem is becoming more urgent every day, but in terms of legislation, we are just getting started, Buckus says. The world won't become a cleaner place if we lack a global approach. The ban of microplastics in cosmetics by the European Union is spectacular, according to Buckus, from a legal point of view. But this just concerns the microplastics added on purpose to products like scrubs and toothpaste. They make up less than 1% of the microplastics in the ocean. The two biggest origins are the wear and tear of car tyres on the road, 28%, and the clothes in the washing machine, 35%. Who is responsible for that? 
the manufacturer of the clothes, of the washing machine, the sewage treatment, or the consumer. So-called extended producer responsibility can be one of the ways to go to reduce the garbage piles, Bucket's research shows. In some particular products, this is already applied. Think of car tires that are recollected, or batteries. Or think of the plastic and cans and drink packages that are recycled. For carpets and mattresses, this kind of recover obligation might also be applied in the near future, Buckus says. Manufacturers are not just responsible for creating the product, they should also be responsible for the waste they've created. Connecting legislation around new products is one of the targets of Becker's research. When a new product is approved to the market, there are rules concerning the safety of a product, its health effects, and specific product requirements. But there are no rules concerning the afterlife of a product, its waste, or the reuse of products. We want manufacturers to apply circular solutions. Look at the final stage of a project already at the start of producing a new product making reuse, recover or circular use easier. Let a product meet certain circular demands before it can enter the market. The recycling rate simply needs to increase. Will we ever reduce the growing pile of plastic and prevent it from entering the ocean? At this point, in Europe, only 30% of all plastic waste is recovered and a much smaller fraction recycled. 20% of the collected waste is even transported abroad to countries like Cambodia, Indonesia and Malaysia. It's doubtful whether the plastic is truly recycled there, rather than simply burned or discarded in the environment, says Utrecht-based chemist Ina Vollmer. It's not that recycling isn't possible at this stage, however. The problem is that plastic is too cheap and currently available recycling techniques via traditional recycling yields a lower quality product than raw materials from crude oil, making it less attractive for manufacturers to work with. That is why I am working on new ways of chemical recycling, Former says. One might think mechanical recycling is promising, in which you would simply heat and reshape the material into a new product, as in 3D printing. It indeed saves up on new material, energy and CO2 emissions, but the quality is poor, limiting its applications. With chemical recycling, we can break the polymer change into the individual building blocks that it was made from. However, it costs more energy and thus produces more CO2. By adding a catalysis, I can lower the temperature required for the process and improve the product quality, Holmer explains. This can produce interesting feedstock for the refining industry, reducing the use of crude oil and stopping plastic waste from reaching the ocean or even entering the human body. But what to do with all the plastic that's already in the ocean? We are currently developing a computer tool that predicts where plastics will come ashore on the Galapagos Islands, helping local park rangers in effective ways of cleanup, oceanographer Eric van Sobier says. The Galapagos Islands cover a lot of territory, This tool will help them to decide which island to go to, to remove plastic from the beaches and prevent the plastics from washing back to sea. For this predictive tool, the Utrecht researchers built software that combines all sorts of wind and water data in an advanced manner. It also uses data about ocean currents collected via specially designed drifters. The research is started with the Galapagos Islands, but plan to apply the same techniques to other areas as well, such as Svalbard, Indonesia and the Vada Sea. In the end, 
The tool isn't about cleaning beaches, it's about cleaning the ocean, which starts at the beach. Cleaning up large pieces of plastic on land is easier than removing the microplastics from the sea, and it has a much bigger effect, Fonsabi explains. Picking up the rubbish while it's on land prevents it from continuing on a long journey through the ocean and falling apart into thousands of pieces of microplastics. It limits the time plastic can cause problems at sea, and it prevents plastic ending up on our plate. In a nutshell, this is how Utrecht University contributes to a better world without plastic waste. By researching the impact plastic has in our oceans on the one hand, by finding out where the plastic is, develop ways to detect it and discover its health effects. And on the other hand, finding solutions by investigating responsibility, legislation and ways to reduce plastic waste. Join us in our mission to a life less plastic.